John chapter 4. We're beginning in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For there the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We're going to look this morning at verses 27 to 42. We're in the middle of this narrative of the uh, Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus went after. Last time we looked at the unfolding revelation of Jesus Christ to a social outcast. The Samaritan woman, as he revealed himself to her as Messiah. Today we will look at the unfolding results of Christ's revelation and, get this, the effectual call upon this woman. This morning we'll look at the unfolding results of Christ's revelation and his effectual call to this woman, this Samaritan woman, this sinner in desperate need of the Savior. Last time we looked at the truth of God's divine sovereign work in salvation. We noticed his sovereign initiation in drawing the sinner to himself. It was preordained that Jesus would meet that woman at that well, at that moment. And then we looked at his personal involvement with that woman at the well. Speaking on spiritual matters, speaking of the physical versus the spiritual and in her true need. And then we noticed his work of conviction within the sinner. No one can be saved unless they understand that which separates them from God and it's their sin. If you remember, Jesus said to her, go get your husband. She goes, well, I'm not even married. <laughs> he goes, exactly. You've been married five times. As a matter of fact, the one you're with now, he's not even your husband. And then she responded with what? Oh, I perceive that you're a prophet. So we see that work of conviction within the sinner. And then finally, the revelation of himself to this woman. She said, well, so these things may seem confusing now, but we know that the Messiah will come and he'll explain all things. And he responds, I who speak to you am he. It was the revelation of himself, revealing himself as Messiah, the Savior of the world to this common everyday sinner. 
And it would have been unheard of in this time and in this culture for a man to speak to a woman in public, let alone a rabbi to speak to a woman or a woman such as this in public. But this was the preview of the worldwide church. The Jew and Gentile would be one. That in Christ there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no male, there is no female. We are all what? We are all one in Christ. So today we'll see the testimony of a new life in Christ or the results of the effectual call of God. The effectual call of God. Now, there's two calls of God that go out to everyone. Two calls. One is a general or an outward call. The other is an effectual or inward call. The preaching of the gospel, as I will preach today, represents the general call, the outward call. And this call is heard audibly by both believer and unbeliever alike. The outward call is, is heard by those who eventually will become believers as well as those who will never become believers. But both groups, those who never will, and those who eventually will, both those groups have the ability to resist and refuse this outward call. As most of us have. How many times did you hear the call of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, and you resisted the truth? That was resisting the outward call. But if you're in Christ and you came to saving faith, you could only resist that outward call so long because the, over, the, the inward effectual call was graced to you so that you responded to the outward call of the gospel. So, an individual will not respond to this outward call, a call until or unless the outward call is accompanied by the inward effectual call of Almighty God by grace alone. It's effectual. It's effective. Or... You can refer to it as being irresistible. It's an irresistible call. This is where God perseveres to break through the hard shell of unbelief. The hard shell of unbelief. And this specific call that comes from God is effective. The theological term is, is irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Now, God called creation into existence. God said, let there be light, and what happened? There was light. God said, let there be this, let there be that, and there it was. There was nothing to resist that effectual call. Nothing. He called Lazarus from the grave. There was no resistance there. In John chapter 11, verse 43, Jesus stood outside of that tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth Jesus said to them loose him and let him go Lazarus did not lay in that tomb and resist the call did he? he came out there was no resistance in either account not in creation not in the part of Lazarus just as there is no resistance to the effectual call of God in creation or in Lazarus there is not a resistance to the effectual call of God upon those he 
has called to true belief at the moment that he dispenses that effectual call upon the believer you can't resist it you can resist the outward call for a moment but in his divine timing if his effectual call is dispensed to the sinner they will respond they will respond they can't resist that this inward call is the secret word of God this is the secret work of Almighty God it's beyond our comprehension if you remember we were dead spiritually dead amen we're reminded of this in Ephesians chapter 2 that says in you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath just as the others it was the effectual call of God that broke through that life, that broke through that sin nature that has birthed spiritual life into us if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, may the outward call today, may God use that to birth the effectual call within you today. That's my prayer. In Romans 8, verse 30, Paul says, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called whom he called these he also justified and whom he justified these he also glorified so the call that Paul refers to here is the effectual call this call works or affects an inward change of nature an inward change of character a change of preference a change of cravings and desires of the soul Now, everyone has the opportunity to believe in the gospel, but not everyone has the ability to believe in the gospel. The only way one can respond to the gospel is if they've been granted the ability to believe in the gospel. That's the effectual call. Prior to the time of you becoming a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins, the effectual call of God had not been granted to you. It was simply that outward call that you continued to resist. That outward call that I continued to resist. But because of His grace, the Holy Spirit then gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we can understand the things of God in true belief. For it is by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And that, that faith is not of yourselves, but it is also a gift. So, this effectual call, the faith to believe, is a gift. It's a gift of God. Now, there's been a lot, there, there have been numerous groups of people throughout time, as there are today, who desire to come for him, to come to Christ for reasons other than a transformation of their nature. For reasons other than coming to Him as who He is, God of the universe, bowing down and worshiping Him out of obedience. We see that throughout the ministry of Jesus. When we get to John chapter 6, that you'll see that there's many people who followed Christ. They were receiving healings. They were receiving multiplication of, of, of bread and fish. And so it was easy to follow Christ. But when his teachings became more difficult, they departed and they followed no more. They were responders to a general call. But only those who were granted the effectual call continued on with him. 
This is where we see a great contrast in our study between the conversation and meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus and that of Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Now, from a human perspective, or at least from a theological misunderstanding, most people would consider Nicodemus as the one who desired to seek Jesus out and speak on spiritual things. Surely we perceive that you're a prophet sent from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God be with him. Jesus said, most surely I say to you, unless a man be born from above, he cannot even see the kingdom. But all Nicodemus went away with that day was a killer sermon on how someone is saved. That's all he went away with. And he goes away apparently unsaved. There is no valid proof that he went away saved at all. There's not even any valid proof that he was ever saved. We, we meet him again, or we will meet him again, in John chapter 7, verse 50. And when the Jewish council had met, rejecting the ministry of Jesus, Nicodemus was there, and he did stand up and he said... In verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Later on in John 19, after the death of Christ, he assisted in the burial of Jesus, him and Joseph of Arimathea. But there is never a bold profession of faith in Christ that comes from his lips. I personally think he did come to saving faith eventually, but I don't think it was certainly not in John chapter 3. But again, there is no bold profession that this is the Christ. It's not there. But it's interesting. In John chapter 3, it was Nicodemus who sought out Jesus. In John chapter 4, it's Jesus who seeks out the woman. Nicodemus, when he approaches Jesus, speaks to Jesus first. When Jesus approaches the woman at the well, Jesus speaks first. Jesus said, I know my sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and what do they do? They follow. Nicodemus inquired as to how one is saved. The woman at the well wanted to avoid such talk. Nicodemus leaves with no evidence as to a new spiritual birth from above. The Samaritan woman left the scene and came back with evidence of the new birth. She leaves with evidence and she comes back with evidence of having been born again a responder to the effectual call of Almighty God. See, it's not thought and reason that enables anyone to arrive at an understanding of God. This is what Nicodemus attempted to do. This is what many attempt to do still, even today. That's a vain attempt, and it will never allow anyone or enable anyone to approach Almighty God. Period. Therefore, it's... It is God who has been pleased to give revelation of himself to the sinner. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, it says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It was the woman of Samaria... A woman who was looked upon socially with scorn. She was looked upon as an outcast. 
is the one who Christ approaches. The rabbi of all rabbis. Never would a rabbi have spoken to a woman, especially of her kind, in public. No way. That's why she was so surprised back in verse 9. Remember what she said? How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Not only am I a Samaritan, but I'm a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It was this woman that Jesus divinely came to meet. And he did so according to the effectual call of the Father on this woman. John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. It doesn't say no one may. It says no one can. You are impotent, powerless, totally unable to come unless the Father who sent me draws and this effectual call produces life. Spiritual life. Something is produced there. There's evidence there when this call goes out. But how do we know the woman of Samaria had been born again? It doesn't say she had been born again. The reason we believe and the reason that we see is because of the changes that took place. And these are changes that only God can make. I read an article this week in changes that take place when a little baby is born in those first moments of its precious life. It says this, and I quote, To begin with, eyes that have previously been accustomed to darkness must adjust themselves to the light. A body that was used to temperatures of nearly 100 degrees Fahrenheit within the mother must adapt to temperatures approximately 20 degrees lower. The circulation of the infant's blood changes, no longer flowing through the umbilical cord as it did when the child was in the womb, but instead flowing through the lungs. A valve in the heart, which had been opened until birth, must close permanently so that the used blood and the fresh blood circulating through the heart will not mingle. Lungs must fill with air and begin their lifelong function. These and many other changes involving the nose, throat, digestive tract, and skin must all take place within a few seconds of birth if the baby is to live its new life and be healthy. End quote. Birth alone reveals the glorious power of God. Amen? Physical birth alone reveals the glorious power of God. And yet you have people out here picketing because Michael Vick, a football player, fought a, fought a bunch of dogs killed dogs. Not advocating that. It's wrong. It's disgusting. But I would wager, if I were a betting man, <laughs> that many of those people picketing over putting, put away Michael Vick because he murders dogs are the same people, many of them, who cry out pro-choice in the abortion, the murder of li little babies. They have more concern for four-footed animals and creeping things than they do a baby made in the image of God. That's Romans 1 stuff right there. They worship the creature rather than the creator. But anyway, just as there must be radical changes that take place in the birth of a little baby that comes out of the womb of the mother, in the same way, there are certain changes that must take place within the life of one who's been born again spiritually. These things took place in the life of the Samaritan woman. That's how we know she was converted. 
In these changes, the same changes that took place in this Samaritan woman must take place in those who are born again in our day or there are grounds for questioning as to whether that individual is truly saved or not. Period. Therefore, Paul says, examine thyself to see if you're in the faith. So in verses 27 to 42, record the events that took place following the Lord's conversation this woman, which concluded with, I who speak to you am he, I'm Messiah. We'll see the results now. So the focus of this chapter, as a reminder, as well as the rest of this gospel, is not a focus on the woman at the well or even in the people that Christ transforms throughout the gospel. The focus is the deity of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. That's the focus of this gospel. That's the focus of this narrative. It's the deity of Jesus Christ. In the key verse in this chapter is verse 26 in which Jesus Christ declares himself as Messiah to this woman of Samaria. And then this morning, we'll see the results of his unfolding revelation to the woman at the well. And the results of this unfolding revelation reveal themselves through the divine work of Almighty God within this individual, specifically this woman who came to believe. Now he's just revealed himself, and now we're going to see evidence in five different ways. Five things. Number one, it's in your bulletin. We see the divine timing of Almighty God. Secondly, we see the divine, divine effect of God upon this woman's life. Thirdly, we see the divine oneness of Christ with the Father. And then we see the divine awareness in Christ. And then finally, we will see the divine multiplication of this work of God within this woman. First, we look at divine timing. Verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Now, this specific moment is the specific moment in which Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. So they come back, they're in town getting food, they come back onto the scene, they come back to the well, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, is, am he. and even though within Jewish thought of this day, in their minds, for a rabbi to talk with such a woman, in their mind, at best was a waste of time, and at worst was a diversion from the study of the Torah. That was the mindset of the day. Jesus broke down all those social barriers, didn't he? He reveals himself as Messiah first to a woman, and it's not even a Jewish woman. It's a Samaritan woman. Samaritans were despised by the Jews, and the first one who, who goes and evangelizes that Christ has risen from the dead is also a woman. Jesus was no slave to any cultural thought of sexism. But they were surprised to find him talking to a woman nonetheless. A violation of custom. But they respected him too highly to ask him, what are you doing? Why are you talking to her? So they never verbalized their question. They respected him much too highly. So only after a deep spiritual conversation with this woman that unfolds the fact that he's Messiah. They arrive. They hear it with their own ears. They're amazed. Jesus is in, is in divine control of the situation. 
Think about your own life. Think about what God did in your life and through your life to bring you to that place of the effectual call. The people he placed in your life. The, the, the preachers he placed before you. The truth that was dispensed to you with the outward call. And how he eventually, in perfect divine timing, revealed himself as Messiah to you. It's amazing, isn't it? Just think back on your life. Not now, but later on. Think back on it. I want you looking at the ceiling here, getting caught up in a daydream. Now, although the gospel was originally intended for Israel, it was not solely for Israel. Even in the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be a constant missionary to the world as a nation. They were set there, they were placed there, God's own elect, to be light to pagan nations around them. That's what they were supposed to be. We're supposed to be a city set on a hill. We're supposed to be salt and light. Amen? That's was, that was Israel's job. They were to be the vehicle of divine truth. They were granted the oracles of Almighty God, the very words of the living God of the universe. But oftentimes they had to be chastened because they failed to do what God called them to do. We read about it numerous places, but I selected Ezekiel 5, beginning in verse 5, that says, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She's rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are around you, have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgment in your midst in the sight of the nations. So God's glorious truth was given to Israel to be lived out, to be dispensed, to be shared with the nations around them. The intent of Israel was not for them to be the lap dog of God. You just hop up on the master's lap and he pets them, strokes their head. That's not their purpose. They, they were to be light. So when Jesus comes on the scene of his ministry, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, he said that these 12, his disciples, Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter into a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Go to them first. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, the gospels preached to the Jew first and then to the Greek. To the Jew and then to the Gentile. You see, Israel was first in salvation opportunity. But they were also first in judgment responsibility. They were first in salvation opportunity and because they rejected Messiah, all the oracles, they had the law, they had the prophets, they knew the truth, they preached the truth and they were therefore first in judgment responsibility. You were accountable for what you know. That's the principle. The more you know, the more you're accountable for. The longer one sits under the outward call of God and resists the truth to the end, will be accountable for all that they know. Jesus gave the gospel, the unfolding revelation of himself to this woman in perfect divine timing. He's never early, he's never late, he's always on time. And the same is true in your life and my life. 
He's never late. He won't be late. He won't be early. You can pray and you can pray about something and he'll always answer your prayer. The answer may not always be yes. It'll be yes, no, or what? Wait. Acts 17 verse 26 says, and he has made from one blood, this is Paul speaking to the philosophers on Mars Hill, he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. Jesus was in absolute control of this divinely orchestrated time with this woman. All the way up, right there to where he said, I who speak to you am he, and his disciples came up and heard it with their own ears. That's at this point. Verse 27. The point of him declaring his Messiahship to the woman. And that leads us to point number two, the divine effect upon this woman. The divine effect upon this woman. Verses 28 to 30. It says, The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And then they went out of the city, and they came to him. Now, in response to the divine, the, the divine effect of God on this woman, she leaves the water jar, and she goes back the half mile into the village. The very thing she came for, the main concern of the day, the main concern of the moment, she leaves it and she goes back. So the first change that we see in this woman is a change of values, a change of interest. Physical water, H2O, was no longer her concern. Her concern was the living water that had just been dispensed into her dead soul. See, the divine effect of coming to faith in Jesus Christ is a change of interest. It's a change of desires. It's a change of wants. It's a change of goals. It's not that certain goals professionally are bad. It just won't consume you any longer. They will be under the umbrella of God's sovereign control and worship and honor of Him because of the effectual call on one's life. All those dreams and goals and desires one has when they respond to the effectual call of Almighty God take a back seat to desiring, hungering, and thirsting for righteousness, having a purity of heart, growing in mercy, growing in grace, growing in humility. They all take a back seat to becoming more Christ-like. Have you experienced that change in your life? That's a question. And are you experiencing that change in your life continually, believer? We must continually be growing to become more like Christ. Now, regeneration, when someone's born again, it takes place immediately. Immediately. When you were born again, it was in a moment. That's where Jesus said, as the wind blows to and fro, you do not know where it comes from, nor where it goes, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. It's born from above. It's God's grace dispensed upon the person, enabling them to see with spiritual eyes understanding what Christ has done. But oftentimes, growing away from worldly interests takes a little more time for others than it does for some who are just radically changed overnight. My desires, just by the grace of God, they, they were just, they were gone, almost all of them just like that. I understand not everyone is like that. God works differently. But the, 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 the work of regeneration is just like that for everyone, where they step into a living relationship because of that effectual call. 
It was a change of desire, a change of pleasure. I was talking to uh, someone from this church just this past week or so, and he was talking about how a couple of his greatest interests in life have always been working out and surfing. Okay? Cool to work out, right? Even though the Bible says physical exercise profits, but it only profits little. Right? It does profit something. There's nothing sinful about working out unless you start worshiping the man in the mirror. You know? There's nothing wrong with surfing. Surfing's great. I don't surf. I've never been on a board. I don't think I could make it up on a board, so I don't even try. But there's nothing wrong with surfing. But his point was this. He's single, and he has a friend who, because he's single, calls him up and says, hey, let's go off to Hawaii for five, six days to go surfing. See, when you don't have kids, you can do that stuff. Just take off to Hawaii and go surfing. And the interesting thing is, is that he said, because now he's in a class on systematic theology on Thursday nights, and because he meets with a group of men to grow in the disciplines of Christ every other Saturday, he goes, well, look, man, if, if I go, I'm going to miss Thursday. Then I'm going to miss Saturday if it falls on the Saturday with the men. And then I'm going to miss church on Sunday. So, you know what? I, I really can't afford to go. Yeah, praise God. And he said his buddy looked like he just punched him in the gut. He doesn't understand the divine work of God in this man that is changing the desires, changing his values, changing his interests, you see. So if it's not true for you, perhaps you're holding on to the water jars of life that you need to leave at the water well of life. You see, like this woman did. She left it and she went. Also interesting that it's an eyewitness account of John who noticed that and then penned it in here years later. So that's one divine effect is a change of values, a change of interest. Another divine effect of a transformed life is verbal confession and a concern for the lost. Verbal confession of Christ and a concern for the lost. So she leaves these in incidental things and then she runs by faith to tell others. You know, it's interesting that as eager as she was to share this divine truth of having been, uh, that was revealed to her, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, if there were any other women at the well, she would certainly have cried out to them first. So, therefore, the sixth hour, if it was Jewish time, would have been noon. They start hour one at 6 a.m. The sixth hour would have been noon. Typically, women went out to get water in the, in the early morning and then in the evening to avoid the heat of the day. So, because perhaps of her, her, her shame and her lifestyle, she would go and get water at noon when no one else was there. So, beings that there was no one to really share with, she runs back into town to declare this great truth. See, this is power in her now. This is power of living water flowing up, bubbling up, bubbling out. She can't contain it, man. So she goes and she runs back. She leaves incidental things and she runs back to this village of Sikar. You know, oftentimes the most attractive evangelists are those who God has recently renewed those who Christ has recently revealed himself to, they have such a pure desire to share the truth of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, sometimes some Christians get so caught up with their head knowledge because they think they're such a great this or that and they know so much about theology and they're such a great teacher that they become stale, arrogant, and they become like a clanging gong. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge is very important. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Theology is vital. 
Sound doctrine is vital. But if one takes classes to simply grow with an understanding of it for the sake of understanding of having that knowledge, you can also step into the danger of being stale, arrogant, or just loud and clanging if it's not balanced with love. Other people get so caught up with one point of theology that they build their entire theological structure around that one point and then they come banging the proverbial drum of that one point of theology, you see, and then they become very irritating. No one wants to be around them. Whatever that one point of theology is, you see. But the purity, this woman, we see a pure divine result of the effectual call of God on her life. And that's evangelism. A change of values, a change of interests, and then an evangelistic heart. Can't contain it, it's living water. She says in verse 29, Come, see a man who told me everything that I did. Notice her shame is no longer evident. Wow, he told me everything I did. Isn't that amazing? Praise God for his grace. Could this be the Christ? I mean, if he knows this much, much about me, he probably knows more. Come and see. Come and see. You know, I think there's a lot of wisdom here being revealed in this woman's part where she goes, it says she goes to the men. You know, could this possibly be Christ? If you have the English, uh, uh, the ESV, it says she went to the people. But specifically, she went to men here. And could this possibly be the Christ? Now, I'm sure that these men, when they heard it, said, well, we'll go find out about this. You know, you're just a little lady, we'll go find out. And that would have been the mindset of the day. So she, with wisdom, likely says, you know, could this be the Christ? So they, well, we'll go find out. Step out of the way. I don't know if that's what happened, but... An illustration was drawn for me in my head this week when I was watching a part of this movie on TV. Um, the title of it was My Big Greek Fat Wedding, I think is the name of it. The one who's going to get married works for her father in his restaurant, I think. I, didn't, I only see a part of it. She went to school, apparently was educated in how to use a computer, and her aunt... Um, had a travel agency and she thought it would be a great idea to exercise her, her newfound talent in, in the travel agency so she pre presents it to the aunt and the aunt loves the idea her mother loves the idea the only problem was they had to convince the father who owned the restaurant that she should go work there so they walk in together and go, how, do we you know, how are we going to deal with this? What are we going to do here? They come up with this brilliant idea. Well, I tell you what, let's just kind of throw out little seeds of you know, the need and, and, and then we'll make him think that he came up with the idea to let her go. So then it shoots to the scene where she's serving coffee and the aunt's here and the mom's here and here's the dad and you know, they present this problem. He goes, I have an idea. We'll let whatever her name was, we'll let her go. And they go, oh, you are brilliant. And they give him kisses, <laughs> patting him on the back and all this stuff. This is what I thought of when I saw that. Here's the woman at the well. Could this be the Christ? Well, we'll go find out. We'll let you know. <laughs> A little exaggerated interpretation there, but you get the idea. But in the meantime... While this is going on, Jesus is conversing with his disciples. So, from the divine effect of God's call upon this woman, changing her values, changing her desires, making her an evangelist, that leads us to point number three, and that's the, div the divine oneness of Christ and the Father in verses 31 to 34. 
In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? First of all, verses 31 to 34. So here they are. They're urging him to eat some food that they went and purchased in town. They come back, they hear Christ uh, um, proclaim his messiahship to this woman. We know that he's probably still thirsty. That's why he came to the well in verse 7 to divinely meet this woman. And his humanity, we see his humanity because he thirsted. He, he was thirsty in the heat of the day. He was likely hungry. But yet here he is probably reflecting on the conversation that he just has with this woman. And now he goes on to teach. He, he, he makes use of this situation to, de- to teach his disciples the deep divine truth. His priorities. Which were oneness with the Father. To be about doing the will of the Father. So the focus of the Lord here is not a physical feast, but a spiritual feast. The spiritual feast he just had with the Father. With a sinner on which the Father drew to himself. And there was the Son. So Jesus takes this feast far beyond the physical. He talks about spiritual intimacy here. Divine oneness with the Father. Verse 32 He said to them, I have food to eat which you know nothing about. Things in which you do not know. It's another classic example of misunderstanding spiritual truth to those who can only think in literal terms. My need now. He goes, man, I I have oneness with the Father. That's food that you really don't understand yet. They certainly went on to understand this type of food, didn't they? They certainly did, but they didn't get it at this time. They were concerned with the material. Jesus turns the conversation to spiritual. Their conclusion is that someone already gave him food, still physical. And the gist of Jesus' reply in verse 34 is doing the will of the Father, and it takes precedence over anything physical, including food. So Jesus, you know, he's not advocating the neglect of food. We all need food. If we don't have food, we die. He's concentrating on his main task and it's finishing the work of the Father who sent him. We see this all throughout this gospel. We see it in John chapter 5, verse 36. We see it in John 6. We see it in John 8, John 10, uh, John 17, verse 4. His desire was to do the will of the Father. Jesus was led out by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan himself. Jesus returned full of the Spirit. That was his desire to do the will of the Father. You know, too many Christians are overconsumed with the physical, the mental, or the emotional stimulus of amusement. Amusement. I told you, I think a couple weeks ago, I had the privilege of going to a Padre game, having very good seats, and it was a great time. But you were, I was inundated with so much information and so much entertainment that you couldn't think if you wanted. It was amazing. I don't shows you I don't go to that many games. I mean, but I had a good time. But amusement. So many Christians lend themselves to amusement that they don't have the oneness that Christ experienced with the Father here and that he was trying to teach his disciples about, you see. You know, think about the word amusement. Ah, a, ah, without. 
muse, to think. Amusement means without thinking. Without thinking. And yet our culture is inundated with amusement and many Christians lend themselves to that. They can't think on things of God, let alone meditate deeply about the things of God because they're constantly allowing themselves to, to let themselves to be amused. Jesus said, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. It's oneness with my Father. Christians today do so little thinking that their appetites swell for the things that are perishing. rather than feasting on the bread from heaven. And then, when you learn to feast on the bread from heaven by God's grace, you experience, here it is, you experience the joy of oneness. Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, and your joy will be full. Pursue it. You'll experience the joy that comes from it. So God's work produces a satisfaction of which there is no comparison whatsoever. Amen, brothers and sisters? There's no comparison. The greatest Thanksgiving feast or Christmas feast you could think of, oneness with Christ being used in His divine perfect timing for His glory, it doesn't even, no food compares to that. No food. It's amazing. And there's such joy that He grants us. That's grace. So Christ is our example here. We're to model our lives after Christ. You know, many people ask the question, they come in for counseling, I just want to know God's will for my life. How do I find God's will for my life? I don't know what His will is for my life. And I want to share with you six revealed wills of God for your life to memorize. They're scripture. These are the revealed will of God for your life and for my life. Okay? Number one, God's will for your life is that you be saved. First, Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, God is not going to bring destruction upon those in whom the general call has gone out to, but not yet the effectual call that we opened up with. Destruction will not come until those that he dispenses the effectual call upon, respond at that moment to become children of God. So his will for your life, Christian, is that you be saved. The second revealed or commanded will of God is that you be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. We're able to be filled because we have the very Spirit of God within us. So he says, be filled. Do not allow yourself to fall into an altered state of consciousness. That's what drunkenness does. Catching a buzz, that's what that does. You can't be filled with the Spirit because you're filled with something else. It brings forth dissipation. The third revealed will of God is our sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, now, you're set apart as holy. He sanctified you. We're also called to sanctify ourselves as vessels of holiness. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. The next revealed will of God is that of submission. 1 Peter 
chapter 2, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So the question is, Christian, what is your, attitudes toward, your attitude towards authority? Your government, for one, outside the church, and then submission within the church to the leaders of the church. What's your attitude with submission? That's the will of God. Next will of God, revealed, commanded will of God, is that we be prayerful and thankful for everything always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Is your prayer life basically a list that you would give a genie? Or is it filled up with thanksgiving for what he's already granted you by grace? Lastly, another will of God Perhaps his will for you, if it's not now or it hasn't been, it eventually will be, and that's to suffer. 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. See, many Christians are seeking God's will for their lives, but they're not compliant to his revealed will. Well, I want to know what God has for me five years out. You know, am I called to preach? Am I called to do this in ministry or that? Well, focus on his revealed, commanded will first and all of those things will wash out. You will see those things revealed over time. If you're submitted to the commanded will, you'll, if you're submitted to this commanded will, you'll always be hungry and thirsty for things that pertain to God. If you're not submitted to the commanded will of God, you'll always be hungry and dissatisfied, you see. Not being able to experience the joy of the oneness that Christ had with the Father. You know, Augustine said, love God and do what you will. <laughs> if you adhere to these wills of God, you can do anything you want, go anywhere you want, marry anyone you want, and so on. Because if you're submitted to God in these areas, you're going to be a spirit-led Christian. You wouldn't even think of marrying an unbeliever, let alone sleeping with a believer or unbeliever. <laughs> Amen? Come on, somebody. and we focus on the obeyed revealed will of God through scripture the specific desires that he has for your life will reveal themselves in time in time that's Psalm 37 4 it says delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart see when you delight in the Lord you soon discover that the desires of your heart change my buddy who turned down the trip to Hawaii to go surfing he loves to surf just the desires of his heart have changed he just doesn't have time to go lifting up and going to Hawaii to go surf for five days with his bro. His desires have changed. And by doing so, you will discover a greater kingdom perspective of life and the intimacy and the oneness of the effectual call that God has on your life. Brought you to faith? Bye. So here we see Christ's oneness with the Father. We just see divine oneness here. We're one in Christ. So as we obey and abiding in Christ, our joy will be full, you see. You'll think on kingdom things, things of spiritual eternal value. Fourthly, that leads to divine awareness, verses 35 to 38. 
Jesus said, He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice, what? Together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. So Jesus here changes the subject to that of reaping, sowing, and harvesting. Now, some have suggested that this took place in December and the spring harvest, which was April, was yet four months off, so the, green, the fields would have yet been green. But Jesus is likely referring here to the gap that simply exists between sowing and harvesting, which is four months. So he goes on to speak in spiritual terms again. He says, the seed that I have just sown, the seed that was, the seed that was just sown into this woman, the harvest isn't four months off, it's right now. It's right now. It's already taking place. And he's preparing his disciples to partake in the reaping of that which was just sown. See, an agricultural season is four months. So there's a time of lapse between the sowing and the reaping. The spiritual, in the spiritual realm, the harvest can take place, place and it can rise and bud immediately. We see the spiritual crop take place. Look what Jesus said in verse 35. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields. Lift up your eyes and look, he said. So Jesus is likely pointing them. Now remember, the Samaritan woman left her water pot. She leaves. He's teaching. He's taking the opportunity to teach his disciples about this oneness over what had just happened, his oneness with the Father and dispensing the, the seed of eternal truth to this woman. She, she goes and gets the men from the village. They're coming back and he says, look up and see. The harvest. The harvest. I read a story about a Bible teacher who actually went and visited this well. You can go visit that well even today, Jacob's well. He says, and I quote, As I sat by Jacob's well, a crowd of Arabs came along the road from the direction in which Jesus was looking, and I saw their white garments shining in the sun. Surely Jesus was speaking not of the earthly, but of the heavenly harvest. And he spoke, I... Th he and as he spoke, I think it likely that he pointed along the road where the Samaritans in their white robes were assembling to hear his words. So, as Christ is speaking to his disciples, the woman goes a half mile back. She says, I just met a man who told me all things. Could this be the Christ? Come and see. Come and see. And here they are, coming back down this hill, if there was a hill, certainly among the fields. They're coming down to where Christ is. He says, look up and see. The harvest is ready to take place. Amazing. He's preparing them for something that he had sown in the life of this one woman. It's very important that we understand the sowers and the reapers rejoice together. You know, when a sower would go out, he would get paid and not have to wait for the harvest to get paid. When the reapers would go out, they would reap, but what th it was important for them to remember that they don't reap if it weren't for the sowers. 
before them, who'd gone before them. The same is true spiritually. Okay? Some sow. Some water. Only God can bring forth the harvest, but when he does, we can all rejoice together, can't we? You know, how many times have you sown the seed of truth to someone and they respond with, yeah, I've already heard the gospel. I've already heard it. They remain in their unbelief. The general call goes out again from you and they respond with, you know what, I really don't want to hear this. I've heard it before. Don't give up. You're a sower or or, or you're a waterer. Because trust me, they will go home and lay their head on their pillow that night and the divine truth of God that was spoken through you, a vessel of God, he will begin to do the convicting work. So you just keep on sowing. You just keep on watering. Both sower and reaper are essential. The sower labors with anticipation of what's going to come. But reapers can't reap without sowers, amen? Can't. They work together. That's why Brett read this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So don't worry, sower, keep on sowing. Don't worry, water, keep on watering, amen? There's been many times that I've been privileged and blessed to actually lead someone um, in Christ where God has brought them to a place of repentance and I just happen to be able to be there to, to partake in that harvest. But many times it comes because one of you has sown the seed. Another one of you has watered the seed. And then their life gets tripped up and upside down so they want to go talk to the pastor. So they come and talk to the pastor and you just give the same truth that you've already given them and God brings forth the harvest at that time. That's the effectual call that they're responding to. But when they get baptized, like on Sunday, we all rejoice together. Sowers, waters, and reapers all rejoice. Amen? So settle in on and rejoice in your area of ministry and what God's called you to do. You might not always be there and, and see the harvest when, when, it, when, it, when it blossoms, but you'll see the result of it down the road, you see. And then we rejoice together. What a joy. Jesus says in verse 38, I have sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Now, the Samaritans, if you recall from last time, they rejected the Old Testament with the exception of the first five books, the Pentateuch. They accepted that, but they rejected the prophets. They rejected the Proverbs and the Psalms and so on. So they had the law of Moses who planted or sowed the seed. They, they had John the Baptist who watered. They had Jesus here also. And then the woman. And she goes with the divine truth of Almighty God in and through her. And Jesus is simply reminding his disciples here, preparing his disciples to reap for that which they had not even worked for. They were in town getting food. They never met this woman. Preparing them. It's the work of God. You know, Israel had the law and the prophets. They were given the very oracles of God. Their tradition set in. And on top of the law of God, they added man-made laws to that. When the Messiah and the fulfillment of it all stepped into time, stepped into space, stepped into Palestine, they accused him of having a demon. He goes out to one Samaritan woman by a well. And she, along with a handful or two of other Samaritans, however many were there were that came to saving faith, 
They responded. You know what the difference was? Prepared hearts. Divinely prepared hearts. John 6.44 again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You remember John chapter 2 verse 25 when Jesus was doing many signs, miracles, and wonders at the Passover that many people came to him believing but they didn't believe in him to worship him. And in John chapter 2 verse 25, Jesus knew all men and had no need that anyone testify of man for he knew what was in man. He knew that their belief was superficial. He also knows right here that the harvest is plentiful because those that are coming down from the little village of Sychar, he, knows what, he knew what was in their hearts as well. You know what it was? The germinating truth of Almighty God. It was ready for harvest. His, that's divine awareness right there. Divine awareness. God's divine awareness. You know, as Christians, some people have the gift of discernment. You know, we're called to pray, not, not for peace. We're not called to pray for love. These are promises we already have. The love of Christ has been shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to you, right? Pray for strength. Well, we can do all things through Christ who strengthen us. That's a promise. We have peace. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. We'll guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We're called to pray for wisdom. And if we call for heavenly wisdom, he says he'll give it to us. And what comes with heavenly wisdom is a greater discernment for spiritual matters, a greater discernment for what God is doing in the lives of individuals. That's divine awareness. Jesus' divine awareness was impeccable. It was flawless. It was perfect, even in his humanity. Because he was fully God at the same time. But we can grow with a deeper, richer discernment of spiritual matters. And that leads us to our last point. Divine multiplication, verses 39 to 42. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with him. And he stayed there two days. Imagine what those two days were like. Many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. God used the woman. He had sown the seed of eternal truth into her. And she left her water pot, she goes into the village and she says to others, come and see, come and see. So here we see the testimony of others and then the personal contact with Jesus. God personally meets people and he happens to use his own people, right? He initiates the relationships and the conversation through his own, through evangelism. You know, Jesus said, follow me to his disciples and I will make you become fishers of men. One thing about fishermen, you know, I don't surf and I don't fish. I did wakeboard the other day for the first time. And fishermen know what bait to use, when to use it, where to throw it, how to throw it, when to pick up and go to another area, when to leave, when to come back. Fishers of men must be discerning with these same truths. The truths of evangelism, the truth of Almighty God. When to boldly proclaim it, when to throw out a little bait, when to, t -t 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 when to pull it in a little bit, when to tease a little bit, and then just we're ready to crank it in, right? 
It's all his work. He uses his people. He uses the testimony. Testimonies don't save anybody. Some people teach that your testimony will save. Testimonies don't save. Testimonies are the divine work that God has done in the sinner to transform their life, the very giver of life, who, who is the reason for testimony. It's great to hear what Christ has done. I mean, you hear many people glory in their, you know, what they did and how bad they were, and the next guy gets up, well, you think he was bad, listen to me, and then they just throw their garbage all over the place, causing a bunch of people to stumble and go, oh, stop! We're simply called to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. It's the sanctuary of the heart that God wants to be worshipped. We set him apart in our hearts. Set Christ apart in your hearts. And it's from there that the believer must understand what he believes and why he believes it and then be ready to share that truth with respect, with understanding, and with patience. Only he can bring forth the harvest. Amen? Don't evangelize and think that you're the harvest maker. Well, if they don't come to truth in, oh, they don't come to faith in Christ, I'm just going, why do I even bother? It's the effectual call. Just remember, there's an effectual call. All we, are, all we can give is the general call. The effectual call comes from God. And it will be in His perfect timing. You can't transform anyone, nor can I. Give the general call. Those who are God's will eventually respond to the effectual call. So they, they soon came to trust in Christ as their own Savior. They heard the word. They heard the word of the woman, then they heard the word of Christ, and then they came to faith in Christ. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Literally, it says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the message about Christ. The message about Christ. We go out with that message. We go out with a general call. And then in verse 42, this great story concludes. Now they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. We know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. A bunch of Samaritans, despised by Jews, came to understand that this was the Christ, the Savior of the world. The word, the word world is cosmos. It's, it means the human race. And we are those who've been called out of the world. We've been called out of the world. The church, God's church, called out ones. That's what we are. We've been called out by God's grace. Amazing grace. The later chapters of John, as we will see, he, he signifies the human race as being in opposition to God. You know, later on we read through John, do not love the world or the things in the world, right? We're called not to love the world. We are ones who've been called out of the world, no longer of the world because of that effectual call. And that effectual call has pulled us out, has saved us from the world, from the world system. This is the Savior of the world who pulled them from the world. The very Savior of the world. In John chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus said, Having, John says through uh, that 
that verse, verse 1, chapter 13. Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the what? To the end. To the end. In John 17, Jesus said, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. They are yours. The effectual call. The effectual call of God will in due time produce a harvest. We plant the general call. We plant, we water, we live it. We breathe it. Streams of living water flowing out of us, amen? But we've got to go to the well of living water to be filled up. Constantly filled up. Adhering to the commanded will of Almighty God. We must be salt, we must be light. We're called to be a city set on a hill. We can have an impact you couldn't even imagine. Be ready to give a reason for the hope. So what happened in this Samaritan village of Sikar can happen in your life, can happen in my life as well. On a daily basis. The fountain of living water that flows freely within every believer that is in Christ Jesus. Eternal life, abiding life, abiding love, unity that's unbreakable with Christ. That's what you have. That's what I have in Him. You can have the oneness in Christ. So, taste the living water. Jesus said those who worship, worship in spirit and what? Truth. Spirit and truth. This is the temple. So drink freely. Drink freely from the well. This is the well. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words last forever. He's the well. Feed on the well, brothers and sisters. And we will rejoice together in the great harvest. Amen? Because of the effectual call of Almighty God. The effectual call that he had on this woman. Let's stand. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that has been granted to us in Christ. And when the general call went out, as many times as it may have passed through our ears, we thank you for the effectual call, that effective response, that effective work that enabled us to respond. The grace that is so irresistible, we thank you that we stand here unified in Christ because of that divine work. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who has again heard the general call, the call that goes out to all. I ask, Lord, that you would do a work in their hearts that would lift the veil of unbelief, that would break through the shell of hardness. They would sense that effectual call. That you'll grace them with the ability to believe. Lift the veil of unbelief. Draw them near. And we pray that a great harvest would take place here today in their very lives. We ask, Lord, that you would increase in us a greater boldness, to proclaim the gospel, to be discerning and, and divinely aware of the work that you're doing in our lives and through our lives and around us. To know when to speak, what to say, what not to say, and to simply be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. So that when the harvest does break, we can rejoice together as one in Christ for your glory and for your namesake. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Together we all say.
Amen.